Hello and welcome to Health and Life Sciences at the Edge, where we talk about modern challenges and future solutions, brought to you by the Intel Network and Edge Solutions Group. In this episode, we're going to explore how AI is being used to mitigate acute staffing shortages in surgery, what are the challenges healthcare providers and surgeons are facing right now, and how different technologies are being applied to address these challenges. I'm your host, Alex Flores, Head of Global Health Solutions at Intel Corporation. Today, I'm joined by Dennis Kogan, CEO and co-founder of CareSyntax, and Eric King, Investment Director at Intel Capital, responsible for our health and life sciences investments. Welcome, Dennis and Eric. Thanks, Alex. Uh, thanks for having me. Um, so yes, uh, you already um, introduced my, me by title. We, I'm the CEO of Care Syntax, and uh, we co-founded the company with my partner Bjorn from Siemens in 2013. Um, you know, my background is I was an entrepreneur before that. Uh, we exited our prior business, and people often ask me about my background. Beyond that, well, um, I was a technology person initially, Carnegie Mellon credentials, IT, um, and what brought me to healthcare was probably more so the personal background. My entire family going back, I think, to 19th century are all surgeons, including my dad and my grandpa. So growing up, I got a pretty good view um, at what clinicians do uh, in surgery. And kind of all these things came together in business school, um, after which, you know, I decided that this convergent kind of melting pot of a background positions me quite well for understanding various perspectives needed to be able to continue improving and transforming surgery. And um, that was uh, that was the starting point of Care Syntax. Thank you, Dennis. Um, let's go ahead and jump right into the questions. So uh, Dennis, if you don't mind with this first question, what are the challenges of healthcare providers and specifically surgeons facing right now? Yeah, I mean, I think one thing to, to think about first and foremost that surgery is essentially like a clinical therapy, but it's also a set of processes, right? We're in surgery delivering treatment clinically to patients in hospital settings, so in infrastructure, in operations of a site. And so it becomes a very delicate system that combines facility specific issues of throughput with clinical quality delivered by clinicians doing the actual intervention. And so uh, I think COVID threw a big wrench into the optimal kind of uh, system uh, function during that time, right? Because it's very, it was very hard to run uh, everything at the same level of efficiency and quality that you would normally uh, have as, as a system. And so this intertwined nature makes it pretty hard to run a well-oiled machine. And I know a lot of folks are struggling with that post-pandemic and you know, there are some exacerbating factors that came out of the pandemic. You know, we all hear about staffing issues. They are definitely very real. There are experienced nurses who are quitting for various reasons, burnout, uh, change of careers, and uh, they are being replaced, for example, by uh, younger professionals or traveling nurses, which come into the system, which is quite tailored to individual setup of that facility or that physician. And that you can imagine uh, that it introduces additional stress and so getting back to, to that high level of efficiency quality kind of ratio uh, that we had pre-pandemic is, is a big challenge. And Alice, maybe one thing I would throw in too, um, you know, just kind of double clicking on the operational efficiency and the staffing related issues. Because if you think of a surgery team, there's a, there's a number of members on the team. Obviously, the surgeon is the, you know, we'll call them the, the quarterback or the, the lead on the, on the surgery. But there's a lot of members of the team in the room that need to know what they're doing. And as you mentioned in your intro and Dennis alluded to, 
you know, you're, you're getting travel nurses, you're getting people who've been, uh, you know, very little uh, training, uh, maybe not on your team before coming into the operating room and getting that team to be able to work efficiently and really do a quality, uh, quality job with great outcomes isn't just obvious, right? It's something that maybe you can use the, um, a platform like the Care Syntax platform in order to be able to kind of assist the overall team to be successful. Yeah, Eric, I really like your analogy as well, where you're mentioning that, um, you know, think of it as a team and, you know, your, your surgeon walks on the field. Um, and a lot of times what's happening now is the surgeon, you know, walks into the operating room and he doesn't know who the team is. Um, so, you know, pre-COVID, it was, you know, everyone kind of knew each other. Um, they were familiar with the procedures. They were familiar how everyone worked. And now you're dealing with those challenges, like you'd mentioned with, um, New team members, um, you know, some of them may not be uh, trained um, and, and so forth. So it is a very interesting challenge. Um, and I'd like to learn more about that as we go on. Um, so the next question really is around, how can you describe how technologies like AI are making a tangible difference to patients, surgeons, and the healthcare industry? Well, I mean, a couple of uh, potential use cases. One, Eric, you alluded to, right? So like this real-time aspect for staff support, you know, you can imagine a young 23-year-old nurse coming to a high-pressure situation, uh, you know, with high volume, you know, a lot of customization for the specific patient, specific physician preferences in a kind of a high-traffic 5 a.m. to 7 p.m. day. I mean, the cognitive overload, the expectations are very high. So there is technology, automation and AI uh, toolkits that are able to kind of lift that cognitive overload and be able to, uh, you know, support with these kind of turn by turn dynamic playbooks, uh, these, these younger professionals uh, who are kind of entering the workforce. Another example that I think is important, again, thinking about optimization and the the volume steerage, you know, a lot of systems are trying to balance load uh, and, and sort of allocate cases between ambulatory facilities and inpatient facilities. And so very often you could have a situation where, uh, you know, physicians and case managers are deciding whether that case to, is to be shifted to an ASC. But if you look at the risk profile of the patient, you know, you're kind of on the line, you know, is it a case I should send away where there's no intensive care or should I keep it to be safe? And of course, a lot of people prioritize safety. I think there is good AI, good stratification mechanisms for being able to support more objectively the decision making at that stage to say, yes, you definitely should keep that patient or no, I think it's okay, move that patient. And, you know, this has both the efficiency gains and it has um, that necessary kind of imperative on quality and safety. And it's very much uh, modeling and algorithm driven. And Alex, one thing I would add too, is that one of the technologies that I'm particularly excited about in, in the operating rooms is computer, based, computer vision based analytics, right? You have the ability to be able to see when the physician enters a room, you know, at what stage they are in the, in the surgery, you can um, use the, the advanced computer vision based analytics to identify anatomical structures, um, to even warn you that, hey, that's an artery, you know, don't cut that. Things, things of this nature are completely possible. Um, another technology which is around but can be embedded um, in, in this platform is the ability to do, you know, external consults where people can um, have a telepresence during your surgery and you can bring experts into the room uh, in a very smooth, integrated way to be able to provide feedback, you know, as the surgeons are, are moving forward on, on complex surgeries. 
That's a really good point, Eric and Dennis. I think the other thing too is the ability to use these as um, uh, you know a training classes in the future where you can actually store these different procedures, uh, specifically if there's a unique procedure that's happening. So not only like you'd mentioned, Eric, where you can have a surgeon or a team of surgeons call in um, to help advise, but then you can also store that and use it for training purposes later. So a really good point. Yeah, in fact, you could use like computer-based analytics to say, hey, I want all of this type of surgery and this um, stage of surgery, and it can just automatically kind of create, we'll call it a highlights video where you can kind of see this piece of a procedure being done multiple times the correct way. Correct. Um, okay, let's jump into the next question. What are some technical considerations healthcare providers, surgeons, and payers should be aware of when implementing these solutions? Then also, if you could... Um, you know, Dennis, if you can talk about, you know, what infrastructure is needed to, I think that would be great. Yeah. I mean, so, you know, surgery is very rich on kind of unstructured data, right? So we're used in healthcare IT or digital health to be dealing with claims and EMR data. And I think that's, you know, that's got uh, challenges of its own, of their own in terms of analyzing, but I think it. Uh, in surgery, you have even more uh, of a challenge in terms of what uh, Eric has alluded to, you know, video-based, telematics-based uh, parameters being important um, for understanding uh, kind of the true um, uh, kind of dynamic in the procedures. And so, you know, the implications uh, technically, I suppose, to be able to handle kind of this entire gamut of analytics and automation, which is kind of combining the structured world that you have in the EMR, because we still need that data. We're still using it to stratify certain things and the unstructured world, which is everything that happens in the operating room and around it. You know, you need a convergent kind of a system that glues processing and first collection, which happens both in systems that are IT driven and systems that are hardware and medical device driven. Uh, and you need processing capabilities, right? And you know, of course, the best practice of processing large troves of structured data um, or any data for that matter, as long as it's not needed real time, is the cloud. And then the, given the nature of surgery, which I described earlier, which is, you know, it's very it's still hands on, quote unquote. Right. So you can't you know, you have to be in the operating rooms, you have to be in that inpatient or uh, sterilized environment. And so injecting that back into what I think Eric, you'd call uh, Alex the edge. Right. Um, where, you know, real-time implications of injecting this intelligence are crucial, that entire ecosystem has to be kind of a one integrated solution, right? Having that, you can leverage the full cycle of um, kind of value adds that uh, you can get, right? You can understand your variability in surgery through analytics. Uh, you can uh, address uh, kind of diagnostics, understanding why certain things happen, and then you can deploy, as we discussed, uh, these artificial intelligence or automation-driven assists directly into the workflow, which, as I, as I mentioned, this is not a desktop-type workflow. We're not talking about administrative part of uh, surgery. We're talking about clinical delivery, which is people in sterilized gloves and people literally standing over the patient. So uh, there is a lot, uh, there's a lot there, but good news. Um, there is an ecosystem of technologies, mature technologies that is very well suited for this. You know, I, you know, go back to my Carnegie Mellon back, background and things we did in sort of defense and even sports 
world, you know, you have use cases outside healthcare, maybe less mission critical, but equally dynamic in terms of needing that situational awareness and needing that glue between structured analytics and unstructured diagnostics. Those technologies can be adapted, improved, tweaked um, to create this ecosystem. And it does require dedicated thinking about how to architect this. And I think providers, surgeons, payers should be aware of it, but it's, uh, it's a matter of present, not. Yeah, that's Perfect. good. Dennis, um, really quick. Um, you did mention real time. Um, so that, that wondering if you could maybe talk a little bit about some of the challenges and implementation regarding to real time at the edge. Yeah, and Eric, feel free to chime in. I mean, you know, you know, we, we operate in a regulated world, right? So surgery, it's a, you know, it's a therapy, right? So, um, you know, most of the decision support is still, uh, you know, is upheld to a pretty high standard of performance, right? And one of the most important aspects, you know, specific to actual live surgery is sort of lag and delay. You know, if you're getting decision support, even if it's secondary, right, and it may not be, uh, playing a part in the in the process, but still, it's expected to be somehow be um, be there when when needed, um, and that means uh, you have these near real time expectations where you know certain aspects are you know essentially needing to be um, imperceptible to human eye, right? So these lags uh, they create uh, probably more. Um, uh, an issue in terms of utilizing decision support, because at the moment, um, most technologies are leveraged as support. They're not participating in the clinical decision-making, but still, right? If you're trying to reduce your cognitive load, you don't need it in five minutes when you're already past the specific situation. You kind of need it right around there. And, uh, and, and that has a certain technical um, complexity in terms of optimization uh, of computer vision models or analytics models uh, that needs to be reached. That, that's exactly what I wanted to like emphasize. You know, you talked about technical considerations. You know, if, if you want to um, be real time, I mean, you know, Dennis set the standard as you can't recognize any lag from the eye from real time. Um, so there, there can be some latency, but it has to be super low. But, when, but the technical consideration is, is there's more going on than just the video. So you have to deliver the video at a very low latency. But what happens if you're running um, you know, computer vision-based algorithms, multiple, on a particular video stream? What if you're overlaying you know, vitals monitoring and analytics that is tracking the stability of a patient at the same time? And what if you um, have a video consult coming in from a specialist and you still need the low latency video to where no one can perceive any changes in the video uh, quality or, or speed coming to the physician. And, um, and that, that's, that's fundamental, right? But at, at the end of the day, like when, when you first asked the question, my first thought was, we want the technology to be invisible. So it's not really consideration for the physician or the surgeon when he comes in the room. It's just invisible. It's part of the workflow. It's very natural. But um, but there's a lot that goes behind that. And so when you're selecting a platform, you got to look at, you know, the, the big picture. Does this drive infrastructure changes? Like, do you need high-speed optical cabling to achieve this low latency? Or can you use your standard Cat5 cabling and not close the operating room while you're making a transition to this new infrastructure? I mean, there's a, there's a lot of things. But at the end of the day, you need to create a platform or have a platform that has the ability to, to layer on all these things and still deliver kind of invisible, seamless, real-time experience. 
Yeah, I think I think it's a good point, Eric. I, I didn't. So when I say that it's sort of like tailored and end to end, I don't mean to say that it's extremely heavy, quote unquote, or disruptive, right? So that's where I think where we are today in adapting technologies that exist. You could be pretty close to plug and play, you know. While of course, when we started out, you know, 2013, 14, or even before that. You know, the infrastructure around the OR was leveraging the technology of then, which was much more, you know, heavy and expensive. I think we are in a place where IT uh, or AV over IT or, you know, compute at the edge have moved, you know, miles and miles forward in terms of being more cost effective, easier to deploy. So I think the actual end last mile deployment is is less of an issue from a user perspective. A lot of these things will be out of the box from a perspective of developments that we had to do together with Intel partially, you know, that's of course where there's a lot of heavy lifting, you know, in, in order to make it out of the box, right? I think it's important to highlight. Yeah, thank you for that, both uh, Dennis and Eric. Dennis, I really like how you also kind of brought it home and you mentioned how, um, you know, deployment at the edge is getting easier, how it's um, evolved over time and it's going to continue to evolve. And like you said, it's going to be, um, you know, plug and play um, in the near future as well. Um, Eric, for this next question, I'd like to, um, for you to start off. Uh, and it's really around, you know, how is Intel collaborating with organizations like Care Syntax to transform the healthcare industry? Uh, that's, that's a great question. So first off, I would say Intel Capital really tries to be closely aligned with our business units, as you know, Alex, because you're my business unit lead on, on this one in particular. Um, but we identify things like the architecture of the um, operating room of the future and go and try to find companies like Care Syntax and, and, and help them to architect their platform in a way that kind of achieves those objectives and then helps with the demand creation side. So to get to your question, um, basically how we engage it, first, it, it typically in, uh, begins with uh, an engagement around tech, technology-related collaboration. What's the vision? What are the requirements of the market? And in this case, where we're talking about the potential to have very low latency video delivered with layers of analytics, computer vision-based and machine learning-based analytics on top of it, and without damaging you know, the, the requirement or still meeting the requirement of, of having very low latency video. So the technical engagement is where, where it starts. Um, we try to lean in, um, provide engineers that support this. And then on the, the second side, as we transition to demand creation, uh, we, we start with marketing collaterals, you know, videos, uh, white papers, uh, things that highlight the performance of the of the solutions that we engage in, and then we move into the direct introductions. You know, leveraging our sales and marketing teams that are um, already have existing relationships with the tier one, you know, payers, providers, equipment manufacturers in the health and life science area. Those are the two big ways. Dennis may have some comments. Hopefully, some good comments. <laughs> yeah, no, I think you've said a lot of the things that I would say as well. I looking at it from an Intel capital perspective, which of course for us was the initial uh, collaborator, uh, you know, first as a, as a co-investor in our prior round of financing, uh, a very thoughtful investor, you know, pleasure to, to have gone through the process then and to be uh, engaging around the board. So that's not unimportant, right? I mean, I mentioned it because I deal with investors all the time and I have a lot of experience with strategic investors as well in our past and I think Intel Capital is top bracket. I think from a perspective of quarterbacking the access to the Intel ecosystem, I think it's 
you know, probably, no, not probably, it's definitely the best um, working tandem I see, right? So the ability to access uh, all these aspects that um, Eric is talking about is pretty smooth, right? So I think, you know, we're often operating in quite dynamic setting. And so being able to quickly align and quickly get access to the relevant people, I think that's been particularly uh, valuable to us. And then once you kind of transition in and think about what I'm observing, and I don't have daily interactions on the technical side, but what I hear and see from our product teams, you know, there's just an amazing sort of spirit of collaboration, right? So, you know, Intel architects do have superb intellectual curiosity about specific use cases. And I don't know if we just have a particularly exciting use case or it's just their average thirst for knowledge, but, you know, <laughs> but, but you basically, you know, uh, you know, it's fun, right? Because, you know, we often sort of evangelize from our perspective and it's always so rewarding when people are leaning in, uh, not just on the technical competency side, but being excited about the impact these innovations can produce. I, I hear uh, that, you know, it's very much a, a well-oiled uh, glued team that both organizations have put together. So I, I can imagine that this is not just our experience. I think that's probably what other uh, partners of Intel see as well. And also just, you know, from the, the business unit perspective too, um, you know, being able to work with companies like Kerasyntex that are bringing cutting edge solutions into the market, um, looking for ways to help them innovate, to help them scale. Obviously, um, it's beneficial for us, but ultimately it's beneficial for the industry. So I'm going to begin wrapping it up with one final question um, for you. Looking five years out, what are some of the transformative technologies that will move the industry forward? Should I take the first crack at it? Take the rest of the time of the podcast on talking about it. Absolutely. <laughs> I'll, try to be, I'll try to be brief. Uh, I mean, so I think the big vision that we have uh, where it kind of wraps all of this innovation, you know, the edge, the cloud, the analytics, the AI, the automation, you know, people don't think about it, but I think precision medicine is often a term that's used in, in sort of pharma and biotech world where you're tailoring your process and your therapy and your mechanism of action to fit a specific patient to reach the optimal outcome and decrease the chance of it not working or even worse hurting that patient. You know, there is ample room for precision medicine and surgery, right? I mean, um, the surgical planning of treatment, the, the, the stratification you need in terms of risk at the point of conversion from consultations to surgery, the actual surgery, the post-acute recovery. There's so many notes where if you uh, um, essentially take into account the data and the profile and create algorithms and applications that can help nudge the process in, in the optimal way in this decision tree, you are creating personalized medicine and surgery. And, you know, if you look at the average outcomes, you know, you know, they're not um, yet where they could be well, aggregate and sort of average basis. Uh, there is variability, you know, there are five to 15% complication rates. There are, um, there are costs of course, that are born around, revisions, readmissions. So all around there is improvement potential, you know, and uh, it's already safe. Um, but if you take the statistics at least, you know, and top 10 riskiest things you could do, you know, it's not as safe as flying, right? And we always say like, look, can we get risk stratification? Can we get tech to 
to get it to be that safe, you know, not 15% of complication, you know, 1%. So that's kind of the big vision. And I think we will get there. Uh, I don't know if it'll take five years, seven years or three years. We'll see a lot of factors there, you know, very specifically in terms of our topic of discussion, at least re relevant to Intel collaboration in terms of the edge and real-time ecosystem. Um, I think that the, you know, that platform that we talked about and discussed is going to become you know, ubiquitous, I would say, right? And I think the way I'm looking at it, I'm comparing it a little bit. It's maybe not completely apples to apples, but the home automation market 20 years ago um, when we had proprietary heavy system to where we are now, right? I mean, you take very nimble, very easy to plug and play, very connected to, uh, to the cloud, but also very relevant real-time systems that the majority can seamlessly enjoy. I honestly believe that with the work that we're doing and the collaboration we're getting from the ecosystem, we mentioned payers, medtechs, uh, we will get there and you know all of these folks will be able to kind of leverage this uh, platform in, in most places where, where surgery happens and de derive value from it, you know, broadly for the patient and safety, but also for their own applications on application level, right? Because one of the, the beauty of robust ecosystems that they're also open and you can build additional value on top of it. I think I see something like this. I don't know if it's going to be an app store that is as easy to get to, but I could see, for example, our medtech partners build their own use cases uh, real time for a specific procedure and a device. So I think uh, we will see a very robust development there and it'll plug back in into this precision medicine vision uh, and it will, you know, it'll get surgery to the next level. Good examples. I think one other thing I'd like to add to, and, and Dennis, you've mentioned this earlier in the conversation as well, is, you know, the ability to integrate other technologies that are uh, maybe moving faster in different industries. So we're seeing, like, for example, VR being integrated today, um, metaverse in the future, um, you know, and a lot of times, you know, healthcare cannot integrate those technologies so fast because obviously we're in a regulated environment, but I think a lot of times we learn from the implementation of those technologies in other industry and being able to implement those always excites me as well. Okay, uh, great conversation points and solutions. Uh, Dennis, Eric, thank you again for being on the podcast. How does someone get in contact with you? I think easy is probably... LinkedIn, right? I mean, that is going care syntax. I think I'm the only one um, would welcome any thoughts um, or connections. Yeah, and I'm just ES King at uh, on, on LinkedIn as well. So perfect. Thank you for that. And again, I want to thank our audience for tuning into Health and Life Sciences at the Edge, where we talk about modern challenges and future solutions. It's brought to you by the Network and Edge Solutions Group to hear the latest thought leadership from Intel. Subscribe to Health and Life Sciences at the Edge to stay up to date with every new episode.